Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. My title, Does Tradition Live? Does Doctrine Change? poses two questions, and it does so because I think they are deeply intertwined. The question of whether Christian doctrines can be said to develop is best approached, I want to suggest, by reflecting first on the nature of tradition itself. Both of these questions generate a great deal of argument and heated opinion. Obviously enough, that is because people tend to ask whether doctrines can develop in relationship to a church teaching about which they feel strongly. They are unhappy because they think that the church has unacceptably changed this doctrine or because they would like that doctrine to be changed. Now, even if you are here tonight because you have strong opinions about a particular doctrine, I hope to show you that there is a great deal to be gained by thinking in more general terms about the very idea of doctrinal change and development. But to speak about change is always also to speak about our commitments to what has been our tradition. And it is with tradition that I want to begin. At its most basic, we moderns tend to identify tradition with opinions, attitudes and practices inherited from the past. Critiques of tradition are perhaps one of the signal features of modernity. And no one who has known something of the social and political development of Ireland over the past 30 years will be ignorant of what a critique of tradition looks like. But the path from criticizing particular traditions to criticizing tradition as such is short. And it is one, however, that we should perhaps be wary of treading. For a wonderfully clear example of such critiques of tradition, and yet also a wonderfully clear example of why such critiques often undermine themselves, we might turn to Karl Marx's famous pamphlet from 1852 about the dictatorship of Napoleon III, the 18th Brumaire of Louis, Napole Louis Bonaparte. The phrase 18th Brumaire refers to the date that we would call now the 9th of November, 1799. It was on that day that Napoleon seized power in France. And Marx is comparing the coup of Louis Bonaparte in 1851 to that of his uncle Napoleon in 1799. In the first chapter of his text, Marx writes this. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances. 
but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. In like manner, the beginner who has learned a new language always translates it back into his mother tongue, but he assimilates the spirit of the new language and expresses himself freely only when he moves in it without recalling the old and when he forgets his native tongue. So when one sets out on any course of action, Marx claims, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Tradition here is that which restricts our attempts to think the new and which draws us constantly to repeat the errors of the past. And in saying this, Marx is very much a man of the post-Enlightenment. However, irony is not far away. When Marx turns to the analogy of learning a language, he's quite right. To express oneself freely is only possible when one thinks in the new language and does not constantly translate. And yet to learn a new language is always also to enter a new and different tradition. It isn't simply to escape from tradition. The new freedom that is learned, the freedom to look at the world in a new language within a new imaginative universe, is a freedom possible because generations and generations have developed the language that one learns. The new freedom is possible because the particular complexities of meaning and expression develop over time within every language. And here we find something that has been vital to those philosophers and cultural critics who have over the past few centuries criticized the rejection of tradition that has been so central to much of modernity. Tradition is not only a nightmarish weight on the mind, but also that which inescapably makes possible thinking the new. While there may well be particular aspects of our inherited traditions that we wish for good or bad reasons to reject, paradoxically, it is also tradition that shapes and provides the freedom that we enjoy. We can take up Marx's linguistic analogy and press it a little further. English English and Irish English are both forms of English, but they have evolved to become two different members of the same family, and they are constantly evolving independently and in conversation. What you say, what you may say in Irish English, has a particular history of expression, a particular historical and social context that helps to make possible particular flights of the imagination and particular styles of thought. Some of you may be familiar with Monachan Magan's whimsical little book, 32 Words for Field, meditating on the imaginative landscape that comes if one speaks about and imagines the Irish landscape in Irish. Whether or not all that he claims is actually so, and it's beyond my knowledge to judge, 
I would want to say that something very similar is true about imagining and speaking about the Irish landscape in Irish English, or thinking about the English landscape in English English. The language that we speak creates and shapes our imaginations and possibilities. The language that we speak is in many ways a life in us. But of course, it is not simply our own personal life. It is also a communal life into which we enter and in which we then move. And thus, you have at the outset here both sides of tradition's coin. One may criticize tradition for the manner in which it shapes possibility, but tradition is also simply central to human action, thought, and life. Our task, though, tonight is not to consider tradition purely as a phenomenon of human existence, but as a phenomenon of the church. And here we will need to deepen our account. When we speak of tradition in the church, once again, we speak most easily, I imagine, of what used to be called the monuments of tradition, of things that are passed down, liturgies, practices, habits, documents, texts by great theologians. Sometimes we also find ourselves considering the term tradition in the context of a perceived opposition between scripture and tradition, between what we might take a scriptural text to say and a belief handed down within the church that seems contradictory. This opposition has been particularly important since the rise of Protestantism and its claims to be dependent on the text of scripture rather than on tradition. The questioning of Christian traditions has also become very significant since the rise of what we can loosely term modern historical consciousness. Those modes of thinking arising in the Renaissance that emphasize traditions as developing layers over time that distort and hide. For example, traditions about the lives of saints and the origins of particular teachings are often understood in this context as likely obscuring rather than revealing the truth of the events of which they speak. Early modern attempts to uncover the truths behind traditions eventually combined with and helped to stimulate philosophies which emphasized the ever-changing meaning of words in different cultural contexts. And thus many different accounts of what it means to be conscious of historical change and development fight against the idea that the Christian tradition preserves a truth delivered to the apostles. But if we are to see how the theologian should speak about tradition, we need to begin somewhere else, away from the notion of tradition simply as things handed down. I would like to begin by taking us back to the beginning of the 20th century and to the mighty French philosopher Maurice Blondel. In 1903, Blondel wrote a famous essay on the relationship between history and dogma, suggesting some basic principles, which I would argue have been foundational for Catholic theologians ever since. 
Blondel found himself opposed to two different intellectual positions, which I will simplify for the purpose of making his contribution clear. On the one side, Blondel opposed a vision that saw the church's teachings as simply unchanging and as unaffected by the particular historical circumstances in which they were formed. For people on this side whom he opposed, dogmatic statements were simply deduced from the first principles of revelation, and those deductions were simply true or false. On the other side, Blondel opposed those who saw the meaning of church teaching as changing in different periods and as believable only to the extent that a secular historical investigation could support it. Blondell saw the problem here as one of a failure to comprehend how the church knows what it teaches, a failure to comprehend what it is that the life of faith delivers to Christians. Allow me to examine two quotations. The first makes a couple of observations that are fundamental to his perspective and will be fundamental to my own argument. Quote, this is Blondell. Something in the church escapes scientific historical examination. And it is the church which, without rejecting or neglecting the contributions of exegesis or historical scholarship, nevertheless controls them, because in the very tradition which constitutes her, she possesses another means of knowing her author, of participating in his life, of linking facts to dogma, of justifying the capital and the interest of her teaching. Put simply, Blondel is suggesting that the Christian and the church look at events of history through the eyes of faith. Historical events cannot simply be picked up and examined from all sides such that an objective account of them may be given. Rather, even as we certainly work towards better or worse accounts of historical events, and the hard work of historical study is vital, something vital about how we view every event, especially in its place in a chain of events, is dependent on our basic assumptions about the world as a whole. How we think about the world as a whole conditions how we view events. The church for Blondel possesses the eyes of faith which enable her to see connections which are not apparent to someone who lacks those eyes. Thus, Blondel argues, the Christian should not fear that history may show itself simply opposed to the church's teaching because the eyes of faith enable us to see links and continuities that non-Christians may not. One aspect of Blondell's point here is going to be taken up a few years later by a young Jesuit theologian called Pierre Rousselot, who died in the First World War. Rousselot gives the example of two detectives examining the same evidence in a room where a crime has been committed. One detective, who is none too smart, sees only disconnected things. The other who is a veritable Miss Marple, sees the very same things, but sees them as connected evidence, sees the connections between them and the answer to which they point. 
I'm playing a bit fast and loose with Rousselot here, but I can defend myself if you know his work. For Blondel, it is through existing in tradition that the church has these eyes which enable it to see. Return again to one of his sentences. Quote, in the very tradition which constitutes the church, she possesses another means of knowing her author, of participating in his life, of linking facts to dogma. So tradition seems to be something which at root consists not in stuff passed down, but in a way of seeing. Let's turn to one more passage from his essay. Quote, Tradition relies, no doubt, on texts, but at the same time it relies primarily on something else, on an experience always in act, which enables it to remain in some respects master of the texts instead of being strictly subservient to them. In brief, whenever the testimony of tradition has to be invoked to resolve one of the crises of growth in the spiritual life of Christians, it presents the conscious mind with elements previously expressed, systematized or reflected upon. But this power of conservation and preservation also instructs and initiates. Turned lovingly towards the past where its treasure lies, tradition moves towards the future where it conquers and illuminates. It has a humble sense of faithfully recovering even what it thus discovers. So tradition certainly involves texts. Texts in the form of documents produced by church councils, the work of authoritative theologians, liturgical texts hallowed by long use. All of these texts form that to which we turn when we find ourselves faced with a crisis that requires the church to speak. And yet the church's turning to tradition, in this sense, is founded on something else, on an experience, on a life, which enables it to turn to texts from the past and see in them the right resources for speaking to the future. The judgments that the one embedded in tradition makes, or the judgments that the church makes, are judgments which stem from a life which enables a particular seeing of its tradition. In this sense, tradition is primarily a living reality enabling comprehension and judgment by the Christian community. So our next step is to think a little more deeply about this life within the Christian community. And to do so, I want to turn to a figure involved in the same French intellectual world only a few decades later. In 1956, the Orthodox theologian Vladimir Losky contributed an introductory essay to a famous book called The Meaning of Icons, written with the iconographer and art historian Leonid Uspensky. That essay actually focuses on the nature of tradition and has very little directly to say about icons. And it offers a perspective that dovetails nicely with some of the Catholic theologians that I'm placing center stage in this lecture. Losky seeks to find the essence of tradition 
beyond any discussion about the relationship between scripture and particular traditions handed down. He says very clearly, quote, tradition is not the content of revelation, but the light that reveals it. It is not the word, but the living breath which makes the words heard at the same time as the silence from which it came. It is not the truth, but a communication of the spirit of truth, outside which the truth cannot be received. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The pure notion of tradition can then be defined by saying that tradition is the life of the Holy Spirit in the church, communicating to each member of the body of Christ the faculty of hearing, of receiving, of knowing the truth in the light which belongs to it. Losky here is much more explicitly theological than Blondell. When we speak of tradition as that life which enables us to understand the faith and in the light of faith, we are speaking about the life of the spirit within us. Losky also speaks of tradition as that which enables us to hear the words that are revealed and to hear the silence from which revelation proceeds. The category of silence is of great importance for Losky. The life of the spirit within us makes possible attention to the silence of God from which all words proceed. A little later, Losky says this, this communication of the spirit of truth, which proceeds from the father and is sent by the son, actualizes what is the supreme faculty of the church, the consciousness of truth, the possibility of judging and of discerning between true and false in the light of the Holy Spirit. One thing you will probably have noticed between these two quotations is that Losky speaks both about the life of the spirit in the individual and about the life of the spirit in the church collectively. Losky's account, then, is not really one that could be criticized as naive because he might seem to envisage the life of the spirit given to individuals alone who then simply disagree. No, the spirit for Losky is given to Christians within the community of the church. We'll return in a moment to the consequences of this relationship between the individual and the one community. But in case you missed the Christological character of Losky's reference to the truth, Christ, of course, being the truth, note the slight change in the way that Losky defines tradition in this next and last quotation, he says, tradition in its primary notion is not the revealed content, but the unique mode of receiving revelation, a faculty owed to the Holy Spirit, who renders the church capable of knowing the incarnate word in his relationship with the Father, as well as the mysteries of the divine economy from the creation of heaven and the earth of Genesis to the new heaven and the new earth of the apocalypse. Now, this passage, I think, is helpful because it focuses our attention on the knowledge of the word, the incarnate son. While Losky previously spoke of the words of revelation 
and the silence from which those words come, now the reference to words receives a further definition. The very heart of what we know in faith is the word as the one who has come from the Father and the divine economies, that is, arrangements and dispensations, through which God creates and consummates all things. It is from an awareness of this whole that the church judges particular questions and debates. And it is because the church is given this power of judgment that it can proclaim the gospel. Because the church is led into all truth, it can and must speak of truth. I do not know with precision from where Losky drew his account of tradition. But he was a part of various conversations that linked the exiled Orthodox, Russian Orthodox theologians of Paris to their French Catholic contemporaries. And it is no accident that much of what he says in this famous essay mirrors closely what one finds in the writing of the Jesuit theologian Henri de Lubac, whom we will meet shortly, and the Dominican theologian Yves Congar. Yves Congar produced what is arguably the most important Catholic treatment of tradition in the 20th century in a two-volume work published in 1960 and 1963, Tradition and Traditions. Some of the most important insights in these two volumes are to be found, you'll be grateful to hear, in a very short summary volume just called The Meaning of Tradition, which I recommend to you wholeheartedly. One principle that Yves Congar emphasized, and which helpfully complements what I've drawn out of Losky's essay, is that even though we should consider tradition as primarily a life within the church that enables judgment and proclamation, the necessary complement to this life is the memory of what is judged and proclaimed. Thus, Congar writes, quote, the church does not only possess self-awareness of her life, she also keeps and actualizes the living memory of what she has received. The life of the spirit enables a living memory of the fundamental economy of divine revelation. And it is here that we see the intertwining of the monuments of tradition, once again, liturgies, doctrinal statements, the works of great theologians, traditions of spiritual practice, we see the intertwining of these with the life that is tradition in its most fundamental sense. That life is celebrated by humanity through recalling God's action from creation to the end, now present to us as the Father speaks his word. This celebration of God's acts in creation is inherited and adapted from our Jewish forebears and perhaps seen most clearly in our liturgies. This celebration and remembrance of particular actions, particular people in our past, is enabled by the spirit, enabled by the life within us. And thus, at the core of all that tradition passes down to us is the narrative of God's acts, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate word. Through this formation of the mind and the imagination, Christians enter into the great mystery of divine love. And all our doctrinal formulations arise from 
and attempt to help us grasp this story and this celebration of the divine mystery. One last point about the nature of tradition needs to be made. In a text that I've commented on in a number of articles over the past few years, the young Joseph Ratzinger considered the structure of scripture as a series of layers, each one of which interprets those prior to it, culminating in the New Testament's interpretation of the old and the very earliest Christian community's interpretation of Christ's life and death. At each stage, we find an act of interpretation and a continuity may certainly be discerned. And yet also at each stage, how we, we see how the spirit pushes those who believe towards an interpretation that is also unexpected. The newness that we see and the type of continuity that we may narrate can rarely be fully seen in advance. Congar pursues a, pursues a similar argument, although without Ratzinger's clarity about the manner in which the church's own mode of developing teaching is rooted in the very structure of scripture itself. This newness in continuity is such because it is guided by the spirit's work. When we understand that tradition is at its root the life of the spirit, then we can begin to recognize better the complexities of how the church's teaching changes or remains the same. It is tradition in this sense to which the monuments of tradition draw our attention if they are properly understood. And at this point, it is perhaps obvious that I have already begun to discuss my second question, whether or not doctrines may be said to develop. So let's now face it head on. There are many places that we could begin if we want to approach this second question. But in keeping with my focus on France in the middle of the 20th century, I'll turn to a Jesuit theologian, Henri de Lubac. De Lubac's 1948 essay, The Problem of the Development of Dogma, offers a gentle but still very important critique of various theories of doctrinal development developed in the first half of the 20th century. His argument revolves around the importance of recognizing that what is revealed to us in Christ is always a mystery. We will not, he argues, understand the nature of revelation if we say only at the beginning of our discussion that Christian truth has been given through revelation. He writes this. It is not enough to say only once and for all as a matter of duty that we have not found this truth by ourselves, that our reason was incapable of attaining it and that it was given through divine revelation. If only we then behave with it as we would with any other truth, for this truth always remains a mystery for us. What does it mean that revelation remains a mystery? De Lubac continues a few sentences later. Not having conceived it, not having formed it ourselves, we will never be the masters of it. To tell the truth, we do not possess it, it possesses us. 
We do not measure it. We are measured by it. We seek to penetrate into its understanding, and we do, in fact, reach it in some sense. The mystery is incomprehensible. It is not unintelligible. But the more we reach, the more we sense at the same time that this truth surpasses us, that it overflows us and disconcerts us. Note that clause in the middle. The mystery is incomprehensible. It is not unintelligible. By this wonderful juxtaposition, de Lubac emphasizes the necessity of attending to both sides of the coin. On one side, we learn that what is revealed to us in Christ is intelligible. What is revealed is part of what is true and indeed is the foundation of all that is true. It may be examined. We may grow in understanding of it. We may link what we know of it to what we know of other things. Our minds may begin to grasp the world in its light. It is intelligible. And yet, on the other side, it is incomprehensible. You can see now, I hope, why I began with the nature of tradition. One of the central principles of any decent theology of Revelation is that when it speaks of the incarnate word revealing himself as one with the mystery of the Father, as revealing the mystery of the divine life. What is revealed is the person of Christ, the incarnate world, in all his fullness as one with the Father and the Spirit. Any decent theology of tradition, likewise, must remain rooted in an account of the Spirit's life in Christians, in the church. The gift of faith that the apostles receive and that we also receive in the Spirit is a gift of belief in God's loving nature from eternity and in the incarnate Son as revealing that love. That gift of faith is an insight into the most fundamental and salvific truth, a truth that is present to us and in us as the life of the Son's Spirit, but one which remains always mysterious, always which depths that surpass our ability to comprehend. And so in one sense, there can be no development in the Christian's grasp of this central mystery. The church's teaching doesn't develop when that teaching is understood as the proclamation of Christ, as we have it in the earliest apostolic preaching. It would make little sense to say that somehow we understand Christ better than the apostles. Indeed, it would be dangerous, a danger rather similar to what happens if we find ourselves seduced into saying that we, through our intellectual gifts, understand Christ more truly than the more unlettered but more faithfully attentive member of the Christian community. Cardinal Newman, you knew I'd get there eventually, in the 15th of his university sermons, prefigures some of the key themes of his famous An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. Newman speaks of the mind of the Christian who receives the gift of faith as receiving a living impression or a collection of judgments and impressions or an idea of Christianity. Concerning this collection of impressions, Newman writes, quote, this awful vision, 
is what scripture seems to designate by the phrases Christ in us or Christ dwelling in us by faith. And though it is faint and doubtful in some minds and distinct in others, as some more remote object is in the twilight or in the day, this arises from the circumstances of the particular mind and does not interfere with the perfection of the gift itself. Thus the Christian in whom this collection of ideas is faint and doubtful when they are asked to describe those impressions, has nonetheless received the perfect gift of faith and may act toward it with a reverence far less apparent in the one who thinks that he or she understands more than is possible. In this sense, Christian teaching does not develop. It is now what it was when Christ explained himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus or Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And before we get carried away in the details of this or that attempt to explain how the church's formulae of belief have developed, we should remember this fundamental continuity that underlies all such development. As de Lubac puts it in the essay I mentioned a few moments ago, quote, in Jesus Christ, all has been both given and revealed to us at one stroke. All the explanations to come will never be anything but coins in the more distant parts of a treasure already possessed in its entirety. In that sense, tradition does not develop. But in another sense, we are compelled to say, yes, doctrines do develop. There are truths of the faith which have appeared at certain times for us under the Spirit's guidance and which it would be naive to assume that those Christians who came before would have easily understood and assented to. For example, I don't find it particularly plausible or necessary to say that were we able to present the apostles with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, as it was formulated in 1954, they would simply assent to it as something they implicitly believed. I do not even find it necessary to say that could we travel back in time and present Peter and John with the Creed of Nicaea or the account of divine transcendence and transubstantiation articulated at the Fourth Lateran Council in 2015, sorry, in 1215, they would simply nod their heads in understanding and approval. I do think, just for the record, and to stimulate a question or two, that I would be able to explain to Peter and John why such doctrines are appropriate statements of what they were preaching and why those doctrines read the Hebrew scriptures in the light of Christ in a way that, that accords with the apostles' faith. But I think that's a different matter. So how can we conceive of the development and growth in some forms of expression that I do want to speak of here? Well, the church is slowly led into and towards all truth. You'll catch the reference. This we have been promised. Just as all is given in Christ through the action of Christ and the spirit, enabling that redemptive revelation and its grasping by the earliest Christians, so in the church there is a gradual unfolding of articulate knowledge of principles and texts and liturgical actions 
of spiritual traditions, all of which are also given to us as the materials through which we are constantly drawn to the spirit living among us, to our existence in Christ. In one sense, we can read this emergence as the provision of resources to face those who would misunderstand the nature of God's action in Christ. Doctrines, in one sense, are statements that develop when mistaken beliefs arise. But this is not enough. And we should also read this emergence of doctrines as the provision of resources in due time, which can aid the reforming and reordering of the human intellect. Why this is known at one point and that at another is something for which satisfactory and final answers in human terms cannot be given. But we can see the process of receiving that which we have been vouchsafed, contemplating the reality of this teaching and handing it on to new generations. We can see this process, I think, as one that is sacramental, as one that makes present the world's graceful transformation of the human mind toward a fuller embrace of its place in the created order, beneath its creator and in unity with the whole of humanity. How we conceive of this development is a highly complex matter. It doesn't work, I think, to imagine the church's doctrinal development as a purely logical unfolding of what is implicit in belief already explicitly stated. Such a style of description has found its advocates at various points over the past couple of centuries, but it cannot do justice to the complex processes by which teachings emerge historically and the claims its advocates have to make about the logical relationships between doctrines are just not particularly convincing at times. Now, I'm speaking here on behalf of the wonderful Thomistic Institute. And some of you maybe should be surprised that I have made no mention so far of St. Thomas himself. A brief parenthesis is necessary, because some of you may even be thinking that at this very moment, I seem to have contradicted St. Thomas, who when he writes in the Summa of the relationship of the many articles of faith to the faith of the apostles, speaks of the emergence into the light of what is earlier only implicit. He speaks as if he is talking about the logical unfolding of truth. Now, Thomas's relatively short discussion of this question actually can only help us so far because we seek to write in the context of modern forms of historical consciousness about which he knew nothing. But it may be useful here to note two things. First, when St. Thomas speaks of the articles being drawn out from that which is implicit, he seems not so much to be speaking about that which is implicit in earlier statements of faith, so much as that which is implicitly true in God. And at the same time, Thomas may well then be open to a number of different interpretations of this expansion, different interpretations as to exactly how the implicit becomes explicit. Perhaps he is more modern than we might think. 
When Henri de Lubac criticizes those who argue for doctrinal development as a logical unfolding, as one, as a movement comprehensible to us as the steps in a syllogism, what he does is to focus on the ever-present reality of the divine mystery. It is essential for us to realize, he argues, that in the process of doctrinal development, we are not simply watching the implicit being drawn out of what is already explicit. We are always watching, rather, the church speak of matters which must remain always within what he calls the definable fringe of the great mystery. And that mystery remains ever with us through the life of the spirit that is most truly tradition. Some theologians in modernity have resorted to the language of evolution or to vitalist metaphors of plants, animals and minds growing and expanding. But such language becomes extremely problematic when those using it forget that it is only a metaphor or when they assume that its use becomes an excuse for attempting to change Christian preaching purely on the foundation that evolution is a constant and new times demand change. Cardinal Newman's use of such language in his essay on development is far more guarded and thus far more helpful. As we have already seen, he can be read as seeing any development against the background of a fundamental belief that in the gift of faith there is and always has been the gift of an entry into the mystery of Christ that needs no development. The guarded nature of Newman's view is also seen in the emphasis he places on us considering what sort of tests we should expect to apply to any teaching advanced as a necessary development. He articulates seven notes of development, and these are best understood as a fascinating exercise in providing an account of the sorts of intellectual exercise that the faithful Catholic should perform as they attempt to understand the continuities that exist across the centuries of Christian teaching. But they do not attempt to show us how and why such development occurs, simply to test that what has occurred is continuous. We should be drawn back to the point that I made a few minutes ago. The formulation of church teaching occurs under the guidance of the spirit and to aid the reformation and restoration of the human intellect. But even as this process of truth unfolding itself remains mysterious to us, it is never irrational in the most basic sense that unfolding follows an order and a purpose shaped by the action of word and spirit, however hard we find it to see that rationality in individual cases. And because of this, three things, I think, should be said about the emergence of doctrine. First, the development of Christian teaching is a slow and cumulative unfolding. Allow me to offer an analogy, one that I copy from Congar. A volcano may grow as the lava that pours from it cools and solidifies. It most likely takes a definite shape as it gains in height and a cone emerges. 
But unless it simply explodes, the emerging lava adds to what has been poured forth and cooled already. The shape of the cone rises and narrows, building on the foundation already laid. So too with Christian teaching. The great conflicts of the early church, during which some of the most basic principles of Christian faith were articulated, laid a foundation. And we should not really expect these to be overturned. At the same time, the path of emergence, the lines of continuity, are often beyond our grasp when we try to explore exactly how Christian teaching developed. The path that led from the earliest confessions of Christ to those fundamental creedal formulations is actually not clear. Those centuries saw the emergence of many paths explored and later abandoned, even if what resulted does shine forth as the most compelling and satisfying way in which to read the scriptures and the economy of redemption. The more we realize that this sort of development and emergence is under divine guidance, the more, I suggest, we should also be willing to sit with attention between belief in that divine guidance and awareness of the sheer complexity of the process viewed from a historical point of view. Second, and as should be clear from what I've said so far, the development of Christian teaching, in the sense that it does occur, does not by itself make Christians wiser or more deeply comprehending of the nature and reality of salvation. It remains the case that at the very heart of Christian existence in all its dimensions is attention to the redemptive person of Christ, and while all that has unfolded since the apostles creates possibilities for the intellect and the imagination to follow, and while those possibilities have been given to us that our minds may grow in their awareness of all that is, they are also always a temptation for us to think that we know what we simply do not. There is no salvation by PhD alone. Third, and this is where I want to end, if we think about the development of doctrine along the lines I have suggested, then it naturally follows that we should spend considerable time reflecting on how we best attend to those developments. When we consider how the church's teaching has changed, I suggest that our first attitude should not be to see ourselves as needing to stand in judgment over that change, trying to find reasons to accept or reject particular changes, as if that is our role. Rather, our first task is to work at understanding the continuities between the articles of faith, to gain a sense of the whole sweep of the story that Christian faith offers. When we seek to understand why the church, for example, has for many years, many years since promoted democracy as in some form a good, and why monarchy as a mode of governance now no longer claims the church's stamp of approval, our job is to undertake something like the task that Newman's various notes of development offer us, carefully considering the nature of the continuity that the church has discerned between these two positions, obviously at some level opposed. Perhaps this point may be raised to the level of a more general principle. 
Our primary theological task in considering some particular part of church teaching is always to think about the ways in which that teaching forms part of the whole sweep of the story that the church tells us. In so doing, we draw ourselves back to that which is at the heart of what is handed on and to the heart of that which the life of the Spirit draws us, the mystery of God's action in Christ. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, we still have some time, so we'll open up the floor to any questions that people may have. So if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand and just check that. Yes, sir. Thank you for the talk, enlightening as always. Um, I'm just stuck with the image of the, the volcano uh, and, and remembering something vaguely that Joseph Ratzinger wrote in the Foundation Stones book about good and bad tradition going back even to maybe the source as well, if I'm remembering correctly. The, the church always has to discern sort of good and bad tradition, development of those things. And I'm just curious about what you said there in connection with the notes on Newman and, and if there would be any analog to the contemporary situation on synodality. Is there any sort of developments there that you could partly give me full pledge of affirmation to, or is that in a completely different category that you wouldn't want to touch? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so you seem to be asking there, there, Josh, about three different questions. Which one do you want me to answer? Whichever you're more comfortable with. Um, Okay, uh, I'll try most of them. Um, in the first place, the, your, your observation about um, the younger Ratzinger in the 1960s writing uh, about the difference between good and bad tradition and the importance of discernment is, is exactly right. Um, but what, what the young Ratzinger is trying to point out is that Church traditions are something to be entered into and to considered and to be considered carefully, and that the question that we should always occupy ourselves with is the question of where we discern continuity, how we can see what the church now teaches as being related to what the church previously taught, and understanding the sort of harmonic quality is very important. So you know, the example that I gave at the end is a, is a lovely example. Uh, right through the 18th century, the church tends to say monarchy is a really good thing. And then during the course of the 19th century, it begins to say, nah, uh, maybe that's a bad thing. Um, and so in you know teaching since the Second Vatican Council, you find it very difficult to find the church saying monarchy, good thing. Um, how is it? that this can be the case. Do we interpret this simply as the church changing its mind? At one level, yes, we do, right? There clearly is simply a change. Um, but at another level, what I think Newman and Ratzinger are inviting us to do is to think about why there is that change and how that change flows from a recognition of the interrelationship of all parts of Christian doctrine, such that in a particular circumstance, um, supporting democratic institutions forms a function of promoting human community that's rather like the reasons for which the church used to promote monarchy. 
so that you can see a continuity as well as a difference. And that that's how we enter into tradition. We don't simply gloat that we have found a contradiction. Rather, we have to think about the church as a living organism guided by the spirit in which the continuity of tradition is at times going to involve leaps and changes. And that simply hanging on to what was there before. So you might say to yourself, well, actually, the church seemed to have supported monarchy far longer than democracy. Therefore, I am going to be a monarchist and smile sweetly and rejoice in it. Okay. Is that a good entering into tradition? I think the answer is no, it's not, because it refuses to see how the church lives a certain life under the guidance of the spirit. Um, and not to think about the church in that way is to, is to miss something absolutely fundamental to it. And one of the things that Ratzinger is doing, I think, in, in the late 50s and early 60s as a young theologian, is really to think about how... Uh, the movement of tradition that involves change in the midst of continuity is something rooted in its most earliest manifestations in the text of Scripture itself, as I alluded to. And I think that that's a really important extra to the sort of stuff that Congar was doing, and it hasn't really been surpassed since. It results in the end, as I tried to hint at the end of my lecture, that in order to have a theology of tradition, you also need a spirituality of attention to tradition, in which you think about how you attend to and think through change in the church's life. Um, I haven't really said anything about synodality. That's great if synodality is something which involves serious attention to the ways in which the community of the church has performed its actions in the past. If it becomes a local bureaucratic exercise in trying to break from tradition, then, you know, that's great, but it's not going to last very long. The mechanisms by which we think about synodality are very, very important. I'm just I'm not convinced that we've quite got those right yet. But that's another question. Any other questions? It's difficult to follow that question. Yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could say some more about Newman's, you mentioned Newman at seven points, yeah. kind of, or we're kind of looking at tradition and trying to understand whether it's in continuity or looking at a development and trying to see whether it's in continuity or not. That, 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 that's, that's a very helpful point to bring up. I mean, I think one of the things that theologians do when they write papers like this is they slip in little ideas that they've been thinking about. And they don't really explain them fully because they haven't got time to. And that's usually because they haven't thought it out fully. But what, what I'm thinking about is something like this. Uh, Newman's famous essay on development um, offers you seven different notes by which you can judge whether tradition is continuous or not. Now, he's actually writing this book for an audience of one. This is Cardinal Newman writing this book when he's John Henry Newman, the Anglican priest, and he's trying to work out whether what the Catholic Church teaches is continuous with what the apostles taught. So we're reading it as if it was written for us, but actually it's written for himself. And what he's trying to say is, aha, I've come up with these sort of seven points, the most important of which is what he calls continuity in type. He says, you know, if we look at the difference between a fully grown person and a little child, we can see continuity in type. Why? Because here's what seems to be the beginnings of a rational person with four limbs and a head. And here's a fully grown person who seems a tiny bit more rational, still with four limbs and a head. We can see that this has grown into that. 
there's continuity, and that's important. And he, he goes through um, these various types for himself as if he's just trying to work out how he can justify this. And by the end of the book, before the book was finished, he thought, well, I've done it. I have to become Catholic. And so he did. And the rest was done. So what's the purpose of this of these seven types once Newman is a Catholic? What's the purpose he thinks his readers should be undertaking with these seven types? It's not so matter so much a matter of personal judgment, so that when we read some new church church teaching, um, when we read, for instance, that you know Pope Francis has subtly ordered a change in word in the catechism so that now the death penalty seems to be uh, almost uh, inescapably a bad idea, which I'm quite happy with, but that is our job suddenly to take Newman's seven types and say, well, is that actually an acceptable development? As if it's up to me to decide whether it is or not. Well, that's not actually a particularly Catholic way to go about this in which the acceptance or otherwise of doctrines is up to me to decide. But it does still serve a useful function. These notes, I think, for Newman are ways in which we can explore development in doctrines and explore the ways in which there is continuity with the past. Newman has come to trust that when the church makes new declarations, it's the church, so it has the power to do that. But that still may present a struggle for the human mind. So he's offering us seven notes which enable us which, sorry, which offer us pathways for thinking about how that newness is also in continuity. And I think from that aspect, they're still very significantly helpful and quite interesting. But that's not really how they're, they're treated in the literature on them. They're treated much more as notes by which I, as one individual, can make a judgment about whether this is acceptable or not. But actually, I think he, stick, he sticks with them and revises that text as a, as a Catholic theologian because they offer pathways for us to try and think through the mysterious changes in different cultural and temporal contexts that church teaching undergoes while still remaining continuous, if that sort of makes some sense. I think there was a question right at the back there. Uh, you made references Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any differences that you're aware of as to how the Orthodox approach tradition and would they answer differently the question of does uh, doctrine develop? Uh, that, that, that's, that's a nice uh, that's a nice question. It's quite helpful. Um, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. First, yeah, I, I I'm drawing a lot of theologians here that have been very very influential. Um, and I'm particularly interested in them uh, writing in the sort of first half of the 20th century, mostly in a French milieu. And that's because in some ways the question of what tradition is was really alive for all of those figures. And there hasn't been a useful book on the nature of tradition in, a, in the Catholic world since Congar's second volume in 1963. Um, that's a challenge. Any theologians in the room will be thinking, oh, I thought they could think of one, but you can't. Anyway, so these figures, I think, are foundational. And one of the things that's really interesting about that conversation going on in France before the Second World War and afterwards um, 
is that it did involve both Catholic theologians and these exiled Russian Orthodox theologians. They're reading the same things. Some of them knew each other quite well, and they do say parallel things. So that's my first point. The second point is to pick up on, on, on the, the, the clever question. Yes, there are differences. And I, I'll mention one in particular. If you read Losky's essay, at two points, he emphasizes that the church, because of the life of the spirit within it, is able to make infallible judgments. But he never specifies, as an orthodox theologian, where that power of making the infallible judgment rests. If you're Congar or you're Delubak, they want to say that, yes, the church makes judgments, and it does that in many ways by constantly saying the same thing, uh, by meeting in a council, but also in the figure of the pope, who, for both of them, you know, writing 50 to 75 years after there's a proclamation of papal infallibility, so, yeah, there are there are moments at which the Pope just says no or yes or this is what we believe. And that that's a power invested in the church by the spirit, which enables the life of the spirit to take a sort of concrete form when necessary. Now, that obviously enough is very much a, a Catholic position. Now, most orthodox positions, most orthodox theologians are very resistant to talking about the idea of an ongoing infallible authority other than a church council. The challenge then becomes for the orthodox theologian, how do you sustain that given that you don't think an authoritative church council has met since the 8th century? Okay, so is there an ongoing authority, need there be an ongoing authority or not? So some modern orthodox theologians will see that infallibility resting not in a particular person or a particularly particular organ of the church, other than just the local church constantly preaching and teaching the same thing. The church is infallible for someone like Lotsky because each local church keeps teaching the orthodox faith. In the Catholic tradition, there's much more emphasis on trying to identify where the church speaks. And so that, that would be a difference. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, here is that sometimes orthodox theologians write as if mystery is a greater category for them than Catholic theologians, because Catholic theologians, so they say, like to keep coming up with new propositions. Um, I think that the, the interrelationship between the figures that I've explored this evening shows that's not quite right. That in fact, the category of the mysteriousness of the life of the spirit in the church is absolutely central to both Orthodox and Catholic theologians in the context that I've examined. And I think it is absolutely uh, essential. Um, however much you want to emphasize, and I certainly do, that Christian faith also involves a, uh, an aspect of propositional statements that can be passed on from one generation to the next, from one uh, teacher to a set of catechumens in any given context. As much as there is that, those statements ultimately are windows on to a mystery which simply escapes our comprehension. And that's part of the mystery of God's love 
that I think is shared between Orthodox and Catholic theologians. So there are differences, but there's a great deal of intertwining uh, as well. Yeah, at the back there. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, what would you say are the greatest challenges to the material sufficiency of Scripture as opposed to the part of the and perhaps if you could explain those terms as well? <laughs> um, okay, the, the question about the material sufficiency of Scripture. Let me let me comment on this. Throughout the 20th century and on into the 21st century especially as the, the, the ecumenical movement began in the 1920s and 30s, one of the questions that really preoccupied Catholic theologians was whether they could say that Scripture taught everything that was sufficient for understanding the faith and understanding God. Because if they could say that, then there was a principle that they could agree with their Protestant brothers and sisters, and this would be a foundation on which churches could move forward. And there were many theologians in, in Europe who really wanted to come up with a version of that as a foundation for ecumenical dialogue. And this is something which begins uh, in the middle of the 1930s. It's not something that begins after the Second Vatican Council. It's quite old. Um, one of the people around the Second Vatican Council who really stood out against that assumption um, is actually the younger Ratzinger um, for quite an important principle. And I think, and I think he's still right. Um, his, his problem with the idea that we could say that the scriptures told us everything that was sufficient for the faith was that it misunderstands the nature of tradition. Okay. It's in the very same essay that, uh, that I quoted from what I mentioned. Rather, he says, for the, for the Catholic mind, tradition stems from the work of the Spirit within the community. And it's because the Spirit works within the community that we see the unity of Scripture. Scripture is what it is for the Catholic mind because the Spirit in the church enables us to see that unity. It's not that somehow Scripture just shouts it at us without the life of, of the spirit in the church. So if we talk only about the material sufficiency of scripture, we've missed the character of Catholic theology as such. The particular question of whether we can find all our doctrines in scripture, he says, is almost the wrong question. And the real thing that needs to come up in dialogue with, our, with, with Protestant communions is how the Catholic mind sees scripture as something simply inseparable from the church's spirit-inspired sight of the whole of scripture. So we certainly want to say that all of our doctrines are in scripture insofar as they are the higher meaning of what scripture teaches. And we can see that higher meaning through the spirit's work. But that's something rather different than just saying on its face, Scripture has a text which will prove every doctrine. And I think in the end uh, at Vatican II, that view won the day, even if it wasn't quite always so articulately put. Um, but I think that is a real difference between many Protestant traditions and Catholic tradition. And it's something which is easily forgotten in the context of ecumenical dialogue, where you, you do want to find clear 
foundations. Okay, clear foundations. So, you know, to give an example, um, I, I've had a number of conversations with um, a, a, a Protestant theologian friend of mine who has had a decades-long um, almost desire to become Catholic, but he's got to talk himself into it. And his view of the process is that he feels attractive by many aspects of the Catholic Church. But what he's trying to do, I think, is to find a basis for everything that the church teaches in some explicit reference in Scripture. And then he thinks, OK, now I can make the leap. And when we have these conversations every couple of years, I always say to him, uh, unnamed person, that's actually a mistake because that's not what it's about. Rather, what you need to understand is the way in which scriptural texts function differently within the Catholic tradition. It's understanding that what you're trusting, what you're having faith in, as that this is the body within which we can see the meaning of scripture in its many depths and forms. It's not simply that Catholic doctrines can be proved by looking at particular texts. Rather, you need first to think about the site within which you see that text, and suddenly its meaning becomes clear. So I think there is a fundamental difference there that's quite important. Does that get at some of what you're asking? I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just one, one question following on from that. Um, would you say that there is, uh, so taking, taking, if we just presuppose for a moment and then sort of hoping that you're contradicted, um, if you take scripture as sufficient insofar as, uh, to use an analogy, I walk into uh, a building site and all the materials are there to build up yeah. this great wonderful house, but I don't have the know-how, I don't have the blueprints, I don't have the demand labor, I don't have certain things that are necessary to properly put these materials together. Um, so presupposing reading scripture in that lens of tradition, yeah and taking tradition then as sort of an interpretive lens for scripture, yeah. um, would you be able to identify uh, something that Catholics hold to uh, on faith, um, like a concrete example that cannot, that you would say uh, is found only in tradition apart from scripture? Um, a clever question, but I will not be trapped by it. Um, <laughs> I No, I, I think that... The, the opposition is part of the problem. Um, there's a lovely passage in uh, de Lubac's four-volume work on medieval exegesis, a lot of which is a bit dodgy sometimes But um, when you try to follow the references. But there is a lovely bit where he says, everything that is hidden in Scripture is in Scripture. It's a very clever little saying. Everything that is hidden in Scripture is in Scripture. Um, so... I, I like the analogy from the sense that you, you go onto the building site, you see a heap of bricks. You don't really see the building. OK, if you're the architect who has designed the plan, you can see the building. OK, it's more like going and looking at a half built building. You don't really know how it's going to turn out. But if you're the architect, you can see where those shapes end, where that wall's going to go, where the roof's going to go. You can see the building out of the mess in front of you. And I think something like that is exactly right. Um, but let's take a doctrine like the Trinity. 
Okay, is the Trinity in Scripture? I've written an essay on this. I'm happy to point you to it. Um, at one level, there's a sort of argument which says yes, because look, a text like Matthew 28, 19 just says Father, Son and Spirit. Um, or Romans 8 seems to talk about Father and Christ, and it talks about the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. Surely you can extract from that all of the persons. Well, of course you can. But it doesn't tell you anything about how they are a unity, what their relative status is. You have the building blocks there. But I think for the Catholic mind, the deep teaching of that text, which to which the spirit drives the church over the first few centuries, is that the one God is three who are one and that this is ultimately mysterious. Do I think that that teaching is in Scripture? Yes, but it's in Scripture read in the light of the Spirit. And without that interrelationship between tradition and Scripture, you can't necessarily see it. So I don't want to say I, I would refuse the idea that somehow the doctrine of the Trinity rests on tradition rather than Scripture. It's Scripture read in tradition. We could take uh, perhaps much more obvious examples like the Assumption or the Immaculate Conception. Uh, and I think in the end, the same argument has to be made that they are in the depths of Scripture and the Spirit wishes us to draw them out of those depths. So it isn't that they are based on tradition rather than Scripture. That's to misunderstand the interrelationship between the two. Scripture exists in tradition, and in tradition, Scripture can be this vital source for our theologizing and imagining. Does that mean that any given part of church teaching, you should be able to not prove it from some part of Scripture, but you should be able to kind of say, and this is what Scripture is referring to in this particular passage, according to the interpretation of the church. So rather than using, hey, this church teaching is true because scripture says it here, it would be more like with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts where he's reading uh, the suffering servant, he says, who is this referring to? And the apostle tells him it's referring to Jesus. So I had this debate earlier that should you be able to link every part of church teaching with some part of scripture? Not as proving it, but as saying, and this is what scripture is referring to in this particular passage, because there should be some relationship there, if you know what I mean. Not just scripture on its own, but scripture with the authority of interpretation. Yeah, I, 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 I can see quite clearly, clearly what you're saying there, and I think you're basically right. Um, if, if you're trying to show someone the resources of the sort of Catholic intellectual tradition, there's a, there's a sense at some point in which saying, oh, look, this bit of scripture teaches this is helpful. OK, so I'll give you a simple example. If I'm talking to I have a Ph.D. student at the moment uh, who is a reasonably conservative Baptist. In fact, I have three of them. So, uh, you know, even if this is recorded, you'll never know which one. And um, he, he thinks that the ideal form of Christian worship is three people with a guitar uh, singing some hymn uh, written in about 1975 by someone who should have been helpfully encouraged not to do that. Um, um, and just to wind the guy up, I always say, yeah, but 
why don't we just do what the church has always done? Okay, I have this little app on my phone. Here's Universalis. We could just say Vespers. Okay, um, and he'll give me some guff about how that's something which grew up over time and isn't true. Um, so I can then lead him into a discussion such as, well, don't you think that the apostles in Acts are quite clearly uh, following a structured day of prayer? Why do you think Paul is awake at midnight in the prison, etc., 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 to show him the way in which ordered forms of prayer life grow out of the earliest Christian adaptation of Jewish traditions, right? And um, I'm always hopeful that that will sort of get him stuck. Uh, but somehow the guy still thinks that Jesus had a guitar, and I can't solve that yet. Eventually, maybe the spirit will work on him and he will break the thing. But um, in that conversation, I am trying to prove something from Scripture. And, it, and it's part of a serious conversation. I'm just trying to get him to think about tradition, all right? But if we were to get into a more serious conversation, as we have done a couple of times with the same person, about the character of Christian doctrines, um, then I think it's beholden on me to show him the, the sort of uh, harmonious symbiotic relationship between the church's ability to judge and the depths of Scripture. That Scripture isn't something which is just a series of proof texts. So you look in it, okay, you have a Bible with an index, you look up Trinity and it points you to Matthew 8, 28, 19, you say, that's proved, on to the next thing. Because actually, that's not a very helpful way of looking at it. You need to be able to learn some of the ways in which multiple texts and traditions within Scripture are drawn together in order to understand um, how this doctrine develops. So why, for instance, is Christ in tradition often referred to as the wisdom of God? It's not simply because there are particular texts like 1 Corinthians uh, 124, which speak of Christ as the wisdom of God. You have to look at the multiple ways in which wisdom is language is used throughout the Old Testament on into contemporary texts such as the Book of Wisdom and throughout the New Testament to try and see the different dimensions of what that means. And that's a complex, almost poetic process of drawing together images from different places and reflecting upon them um, in the light of the rest of our faith. And you've got to show someone, I think, the beauty and complexity of that process if they're to understand the way in which Scripture is source and not simply proof text within Catholic tradition. And that's something different from just saying this is proven by that text. So, yes, I'm agreeing with you there. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Oh. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor, for those very detailed answers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.